Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the MA Mastermind Podcast, your go to source for the latest in industry trends and strategies to help level up your MA practice. I am your host, Nick Olson, Managing Director of Cornerstone International Alliance, the only international alliance of MA firms who focus on the lower middle market. Our format for this show is pretty simple. I bring in a mastermind and we talk about a topic that's all going to help us learn and level up our MA practice. I'm really excited about today's episode. We are talking about one topic that we have all encountered at one point or not, or one point or another, the unsolicited offer. Uh, my guest today is very experienced in sales, business development, and of course, mergers and acquisitions. He founded his Chicago-based M&A shop in 2014. They focus on healthcare, facility services, business services, and food and beverage. He is a Chicago foodie. You can find him on the links playing golf. And uh, apparently he was a former competitive bagpiper. And him and I met in a Green Bay bar before a Lions-Packers game a couple of years ago. Um, please welcome my guest today, the founder of Caber Hill Advisors, Craig Castelli. Craig, welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time today. Thanks, Nick. Great to catch up and, and appreciate you having me here. And, and you know, that last comment reminds me, things, things really went full circle. We met for the first time before the Packers crushed the Lions at Lambeau. And then you were just reminding me how my Thanksgiving was ruined when the Packers <laughs> once again uh, defeated the Lions in a, a another uh, thrilling game, yeah. at least for your side. Well, sandwiched in between there, though, the Lions beat the Packers four straight times. So you guys are up four to two in the last couple of years. Um, so, uh, yeah, welcome and uh, appreciate you joining today. But um, we, uh, we're going to talk about the unsolicited offer that I know a lot of us as M&A um, professionals get and, and our clients get, I should say. Um, but I want to start with what got you, you know, you got a pretty uh, rich history of experience in business development and sales, but what got you into mergers and acquisitions? Well, I started my career working for Siemens, the giant German conglomerate that was in their healthcare business unit. Um, and we were investing across a variety of healthcare technologies. I spent most of my time supporting the audiology business unit. And that was a sector that was pretty mature at the time. And in order to grow our, our market share as, as the largest manufacturer of devices, we started buying practices. And there was a, a large roll-up that occurred in the audiology space. It's, it's really in the the final innings these days, but in the kind of 2000s through you know 2010s, was rapidly consolidated, mostly vertically with the product manufacturers buying the practices. So, uh, you know, my background is is fully healthcare. That's you know one leg of the stool at, at our, our firm is servicing. Um, you know that that's what I know best, and that really launched me into this space. Mm -hmm. you, so you started Caber Hill in 2014. Um, I know you've told this story to me in the past, but what is the context around why you chose that name for your firm? Well, you referenced at the beginning, at, at the intro here, my uh, history as a competitive bagpiper, which which goes back many more years prior to our, our faithful Green Bay meeting. Uh, but my mom's side of the family is Scottish. And um, if anybody has seen the, you know, been to a Highland Games or, or seen anything on TV, one of the main competitions at the Highland Games is called the Caper Toss. It's a feat of strength, and um, you are essentially tossing a giant telephone pole end over end. 
And uh, so the name was, you know, really, really drew from that. I wanted to, you know, reference something from, you know, my past or, or my heritage. And that was you know, very personal to me. And, and the name stuck. I have a, a good story at a bar that I completely made up about how, you know, the, the name goes back to, you know, the Middle Ages, uh, you know, the era of the clans. I should write a Wikipedia page on it just to, to mess with people. It, it's not true. I, I just invented the name Caber Hill. There is no such thing as a Caber Hill, but the Caber Toss is real. Uh, Google it if you've never seen it. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Awesome. That's a, that's a great story. I, uh, and I got to hear the, the fake one at one point in time. But um, So at Caber Hill, you started that 2014. Um, you guys have a really great firm. You're, a, you're a, one of our partners here in Cornerstone International Alliance. And um, you know, I think our, our group really identifies you and your firm as the experts, you know, in, in healthcare um, and definitely facility services amongst the other industries that you kind of focus on. Um, but you guys have an innovative approach to M&A um, and, you know, like at high level, like, can you tell us about the approach you guys take um, to go and service your clients and how that how that differentiates you and Caber Hill? I think the. The single most important thing about our approach is you know, we're we're you know, very selective in who we work with, but then when we choose to work with somebody, we go all in. It's a very comprehensive, hands-on approach. We have a a full team staffed to every client. There are you know at least three to four people from Caber Hill, oftentimes more, touching the transaction. We manage it so that it's not chaotic for the client. There's one or two points of communication behind the scenes. There, there's several more working on the deal. And, you know, we we gauge our ability to be successful, you know, on a, on a couple factors. Um, you know, first of all, the size type sector of, of the company. Is it is it an industry we know and a company size that we have had a lot of success working with? Um, and then, you know, the rest really comes down to the the fit with the owner. Are they somebody that we think that we can be successful working with? And we look at a couple areas there. Uh, you know, their expectations coming into the process. Uh, you know, if if you have two million of EBITDA and you expect to sell for five hundred million dollars, uh, you know, you might find somebody out there who's going to tell you what you want to hear. It's not going to be us. You know, we're going to be you know realistic. So we're. We're always pushing the upper limits of, of enterprise value for a client while at the same time ensuring on the front end that they're going to the process eyes wide open and they understand you know, the reality. And, and you know, personality fit is, is key you know, too without you know, dropping profanities on, on your podcast. We, we have a rule that you know, we only work with people who we can get along with, who we think are gonna be compatible with, with us and our team. And we wanna be having beers with them five years into the future, you know, celebrating the transaction for the fourth or fifth time because we had such a great experience and we enjoyed each other's company and, and we want to keep getting back, you know, together. And, and that's not everybody. And, and, you know, we can afford to be this selective. Um, you know, we, we have a very high close rate um, and it's really driven by this process, you know, good client selection on the front end, very, very, very hands-on and, and detail oriented through every stage of the process from, you know, prior to putting the company on the market, whether we're working with them for 30 days or six months before we launch the process all the way through due diligence and legal to get the deal closed. Um, you know, and, and that approach is what really does it. Yeah, that sounds um, amazing. And I think, you know, your record, your track record speaks for itself on how well you guys are doing and how well that approach takes. And I think, you know, we can all learn a little bit from that as to how you go and approach 
opportunities because like you said um you know if it's gonna inevitably fail like why take on uh a, 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 an engagement like that you know so put your you know set yourself up for uh, for success not failure and that'll definitely uh, help you out as a firm but also inevitably help out your client and make them happier as well throughout the process um so topic today is an unsolicited offer um i think you know, we all kind of understand what that means. Basically, you know, out of the blue, your client gets an offer for someone to buy their company, right? Um, in theory, that sounds amazing. You know, your client will come to you. If you could give, I don't know, if you have a, an example that maybe pops to your mind, Craig, on, yeah, I have a client who came to me with that, with that same thing. Like, how do you go about, you know, taking your client from maybe the highest of high, like, hey, I could actually, maybe not even thinking about selling their business. Like they're going to pay me that for my company. This is awesome. And then, you know, okay, I guess two, two part question. Um, why should they come and talk to someone like yourself? Um, but two, how do you talk them, you know, kind of bring them down to reality a little bit more and help them understand like that might be, you know, something that could happen, but might not happen. You got to kind of temper expectations. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you, you started your question by you know mentioning when they come to me to tell me that they have this offer. I wish that were the case more often than it is because the reality is the average entrepreneur's natural inclination is to try to do the deal on their own. Uh, they have an attorney and an accountant most likely and, and they think that's sufficient for the deal team. And I know the, the, the main audience here is, is other M&A advisors. I'm sure anybody watching this, anyone else in Cornerstone can can say the same thing. I mean, that, that's our shared experience, especially in this era with private equity, so flush with cash, still so competitive for deals, still, despite everything that's going on in, in the macro environment, the need to source proprietary deals has never been so great. Uh, you know, investors, Corp dev teams who need to put money to work have never been under so much pressure to not only find deals, but to find good deals and, you know, to win them with as little competition as possible. And, and so the, the direct outreach to business owners is at historic levels. You know, any owner with a semi-decent business in an attractive industry was likely receiving weekly phone calls weekly letters in the mail, most of which just get tossed. Um, but every once in a while, a phone call, an email, a letter will say something that perks their interest and they'll engage in conversation and and see where see where that goes. And so, um, you know, we've we've had a lot of clients who have acknowledged to us that they're in talks with a potential buyer, have thought about bringing us in, decided to try it on their own. The deal's fallen apart. They've then come back and retained us. We've had some clients who have come to us when they received those offers, um, fully acknowledging at the time that they need help right out of the gates and that it's not worth it to try to negotiate you know, the deal on their own. In some of those cases, we sold it to the company that they were initially talking to. In other cases, we've not necessarily run a process, but said, okay, if you like the look and sound and feel of this one, here's two others that you should talk to too and, and, and taking it from there taking a step back in, in how to react to it, you know, there's no one size fits all solution that either I would tell another M&A advisor to present, nor, nor frankly, that, that we present. Um, you know, I've, I've heard a couple good 
analogies. Um, you know, I can cut my own hair, but why would I do it? There's somebody out there who's better at it than me. Uh, you know, if somebody knocked on your front door and said they wanted to buy your house, the chances of you even talking to them, assuming you answered the door in the first place is, is pretty slim. And when you wanted to hire, you know, when you want to sell your house, you're more than likely going to hire a real estate broker to do it because you don't, not only do you not have the knowledge necessarily or the, the relationships, but it's just not worth anybody's time. And the commission you pay the broker is well worth, you know, the, the, the burden being eased from your shoulders. And I don't know that it's that much different. I think what we do in the M&A world is, is more sophisticated, they're lengthier processes. You know, most of us are more selective in the clients we take on. So we have our, our eggs concentrated in, in a few baskets on, on getting deals done. Um, but at the end of the day, we're bringing relationships, market intelligence, um, you know, valuation knowledge that, that a seller just can't possibly possess because the, the data just doesn't exist for private company transactions, unless you're in that world. Um, you know, no private business owner is going to pay, you know, 30 to $50,000 plus per year to subscribe to the data sources that we all subscribe to. And even those frankly lack in, you know, competence to, to fully understand valuation. You have to be actively involved in transactions in the space. You have to be involved enough to know, you know, that the rumors that everybody's hearing, you may or may not be true or, or, or what, up to what point are they true? And then, and then where are things false? How, how deal terms, you know, kick in um, and, and can kind of skew the numbers. Uh, one of my partners, Maria, likes to say, I'm going to get the numbers wrong a little bit, but you know, one single transaction that she did a couple of years ago, depending on how you want to look at it, sold for either eight times, 14 times, or 36 times. <laughs> big range, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, how are we valuing earnouts? How are we valuing rollover equity? What is the actual EBITDA that we are, you know, calculating the multiple against, you know, all goes into that. So there's the, the signal to noise ratio does not favor the entrepreneur here on, on market data. Um, so, yeah, let me, let me pause there, Nick, and, and, you know, see if there's, there's a specific direction you want to go. Cause I feel like I jumped around a, a little bit there, but that, that's essentially the lay of the land. Right. And, you know, and, and that's a, that's a great response. And I think as M and A advisors, you know, we would welcome the opportunity to advise business owners on an unsolicited offer. Um, so, but I guess that's the point is how can we educate, you know, more business owners that, you know, you do need to solicit the, the services of an M&A advisor and investment banker to help sell because your analogy of the real estate broker and selling your house, like if someone came and knocked on my door, I'd be like, I'm not selling my house. I'm good. Like, you know, why, why would you, not have that same mentality with what's probably worth way more than your house, right? Your, your biggest financial transaction in your life is inevitably going to be your sell of your business. You know, why not enlist the trusted advice? So, I mean, like, how can we educate, you know, as advisors, more business owners in your mind on preventing that from happening? Because we can typically, you know, in most cases, you can't, you know, say it for sure, but most cases we're going to get a higher multiple than they can themselves. Right. 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 And unfortunately, oftentimes the education 
has to come through failure. They you know, will accept an offer. They will start down the path. Um, the transaction will fall apart. It may be the buyer's fault. It may be the seller's fault. It's probably usually a little combination of both. Um, but, th- but there are so many pitfalls. So, you know, one thing that I think is a, a, a more recent challenge, and, and it's driven by the influx of capital into private equity. You know, we saw in the, in the couple of years prior to COVID, and then we saw just record-breaking fundraising in 21 and even a little bit into 22, just, but, you know, spillover from, you know, the, the slowdown, you know, during the pandemic. Um, you know, all this money needs to be put to work, but not all private equity is, is created equal. Um, and, you know, understanding the ability of the potential buyer that you're talking to to actually fund and close on the transaction, you know, is, is, is one aspect of this. Understanding their track record, um, especially with like businesses, whether it's same or similar industries, similar sized companies, you know, what, whatever else you're measuring this on, understanding their role and your respective role post-close and what that relationship is like might not might not make or break the closing of the deal, but it's certainly going to make or break the the ultimate success. Um, you know, so many transactions, especially in, in our world, involve private equity investors. And as a result, they involve the seller retaining some ownership in their company, you know, in, in the form of rollover equity. And so, you know, some of these dynamics will get flushed out as, as diligence progresses and, and can cause deals to fall apart. But, you know, the worst case scenario is the deal closes and then things go sideways and, and the rollover, you know, doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't you know, materialize. But beyond that, um, even even say prior to, you know, someone having a deal fall apart, if they share an LOI, it's usually pretty easy to point out some things that they weren't thinking of. Um, it could simply be that the multiple is low. Um, honestly, I think it's I think it's more rare these days for a buyer in a proprietary scenario to lowball the seller. Um, you know, they may leave some gas in the tank to up their offer. Um, I think more likely it's they have connected with a buyer who just always pays at the lower end of a range. Then they have a buyer who's willing to pay several turns above what, what they've actually offered. Um, I, I do think as, as the whole market has evolved and gotten more sophisticated as sellers have somewhat of a sense of what multiple they should expect. Um, buyers are, are really savvy about hanging an attractive multiple right out of the gates, you know, to a, to a seller. Um, but I also find that in, in some sectors, the companies with the most successful corporate development teams, kind of overall acquisition activity, but also the number of proprietary deals that they're closing, are actually paying at the lower end of the ranges, you know, for that industry. So you might get the best offer you could possibly expect that a buyer A. The problem is buyers B, C, D, and E are all going to be up here, and you're just missing the boat on, um, you know, the increase. Their offer for them could be fantastic, just doesn't mean it's, it's representative of the market. And then once you get to these other buyers that are paying up, you may find drastic differences in the structure of their deals. Um, in how the rollover equity is classified and, and monetized, you know, some are pari pursue, some are going to have shares, you know, f- you know, structures favoring the investors, 
earnouts or or the lack thereof, clawback, you know, options that the buyer may have for the rollover equity. You know, stop me if I'm getting way too you know in the weeds here. But but these are a lot of the nuances that the average entrepreneur doesn't even think of that may very well be market terms, um, but are still you know leverage points completely unrelated to you know the multiple itself. If I come in and I don't improve the multiple one bit, but I increase your cash at close, I eliminate any variable payments other than something that's purely tied to upside, and I give you a cleaner, more favorable structure to your rollover equity, I have made that deal way more valuable to you without necessarily increasing you know, that sticker price. Similarly, we may also come in and kick the tires on your numbers and realize that whatever P&L and tax return you provided spoke to tax reporting, didn't speak to M&A math and, and, and adjusted EBITDA. And again, without changing the multiple or other terms, increase the value of the deal considerably just by presenting the right pro forma financial statement. So there's a lot of different ways that you can go. Um, it is certainly more effective when you have a very specific, you know, relative basis of comparison, like an offer that they've received um, or an offer that a process they've been through, you know, that's failed. But even on the front end, when they're just talking to buyers, if you know the market enough to tell them what to watch out for, you know, and you're willing to take a little bit of a risk that if you give them some of those pointers in the front end, they're going to come back to you more likely than not, they will. You'll win them as a client. You'll get to take them to market and you'll prove your worth, you know, pretty quickly before that process is even concluded. Yeah. That's that's awesome. Um, I want to go back to a point you made where you got the industry standard buyer, maybe for here, but the industry might bear here. Like as a business owner, if you're taking an unsolicited offer and you're like, yeah, I want that sounds great. You might never know what you're what you're going to get and the risk of leaving money on the table. Right. So I think understanding the fact that us as M&A advisors can hopefully bring multiple offers to the table, drive that price up, hopefully a better deal structure, I think that in and of itself should be a, a very alluring type of thing to work with someone like yourself. Right. Right. It, it, it should be yeah. <laughs> operative right. word there. I think is it should, because no matter how good any of us are, you're not going to convince everybody that, right. you know, it, it, it's possible. Um, and granted, you know, we're, you know, largely compensated on our outcomes, but if the deal closes, we're compensated, whether you choose a, a lower offer or a higher offer. And, and, you know, you made a great point when you said that, you know, to the to the real estate broker analogy, there's no way you'd sell your house to somebody who just knocked on your door. Yet business owners do it all the time yeah. to people who cold call them. They'll yeah. sell them their companies for several times what their homes are worth without even you know thinking twice about all they're focused on is saving the couple of percentage points they might pay a banker to take the deal to market for. Right. Right. Um, and so. An unsolicited offer, you know, and a business owner, and, and can you do you see these being like legit offers, um, or are they just kind of like poking and prodding around to see if they can get someone to bite on it? It's a little bit of both. I like to tell people that not all private equity is created equal. Everybody's out there, you know, hanging their hats on the words private equity, and some are credible firms that have raised multiple funds, deployed them, exited companies, and can give you a list of 60 entrepreneurs who they've partnered with 
who all had successful outcomes with their email addresses and cell phone numbers and say, any of these 60 will take your call and, and tell you about the experience. You know, others don't manage any capital, have to go past the hat to raise the money just to fund the acquisition. Um, and they may or may not have the ability to do that. And they also may or may not be really playing the field, putting out 30 LOIs a month, just playing the numbers game. Um, yeah. We spend a lot of time in, in consolidating industries. So, you know, when you have a, a, you know, a PE portfolio company or, or even if they're not PE backed, a company in your sector, public, private, that is notorious for putting rollups together, it's probably a credible offer in yeah. terms of their ability to fund the deal and close. I mean, we've seen a little more instability in the past year as those companies have all refinanced their debt, moved into higher interest rate environments, lower debt to EBITDA covenants, which has, you know, kind of impacted, you know, kind of their overall you know, acquisition activity. But generally speaking, if they're a healthy business and you can validate that they're a healthy business and they're funded and they're putting a roll up together, it's probably credible. That doesn't mean it's necessarily the best right. either in terms of valuation or in terms of the best for you. Um, you know, a lot of times we'll run processes. We, it's not uncommon for us to have six bids all at the same enterprise value. So the differentiation sometimes comes down to the deal terms, but more often than that, it comes down to a perception of the fit between buyer and seller. And then in part because of that fit, your belief that you will be successful going forward. You know, some of that belief is going to come from the, the track record of the company, the track record of the PE firm behind them as well. And, and that's a big part of our job is to help the seller vet them, make sure yeah. that, you know, due diligence isn't just one way with the buyer doing diligence on the seller. The seller, if they're rolling equity, they should be able to do diligence on the, the buyer as well, both at the company level and, and the fund level, you know, depending on, on right. the nature of the deal. Um, but, you know, there's also only the only the seller can really gauge the fit, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we can help them again understand here's generally what's happened to companies they've acquired. Um, and, and so that that is going to, you know, you take the numbers off the table, who wins that battle, you then put all the companies back together. And they're all paying the same price. You've got your your clear winner. What type of buyers are you seeing make more? Is it unsolicited offers? Is it more private equity um, that do these unsolicited offers? Or can it be more strategic or kind of it does not really matter? I don't think it really matters. I think we're seeing it across the board. Yeah. Um, you know, but, it, you know, you don't you don't see it as much outside of rollups, at, le at least we don't. So most yeah. of what we see is is where rollups are happening. You know, you'll occasionally have thematic acquisitions, you know, you're, you know, in, in the tech space, you're your Googles, your Amazons, even, you know, your your Ebays and some other companies out there, they're going to track certain companies in their sector. Usually that is going to be more kind of the early stage technology businesses around, you know, and this is going to be thematically organized around whatever bets they're placing on the future. And that's not the world we spend much time in. So I'm not your best source on that. Um, but, you know, so kind of in the more middle market, mature company arena. Um, it's really just if, if, if you're putting a roll up together, you have to 
put a certain amount of capital to work. You have to acquire a certain base, whether it's revenue, EBITDA, physical footprint, probably some combination of, of a few of those markers. And if all you do is sit back and wait for intermediaries to send you deals, it's harder for you to reach your goals. So, you know, despite not wanting any of my clients to just engage one-to-one with, with one of these folks beyond just the selfish desires of, you know, earning a living for a firm. I mean, honestly, to see what is the best outcome for them, they should be retaining us or someone like us um, in, in order to be maximally successful, even if it doesn't change who they, they sell to. The buy side needs to do this in order to do their job. They, they need yeah. to be out there and, and aggressively um, you know, courting sellers directly as well as maintaining relationships with the intermediary community. Right. And a lot of, you know, M&A firms will do buy side work and do that work for right. their clients on the other side of it. Um, and there are a lot of firms out there like that. So that's another factor that, that comes into play too. But I would imagine though, if you're enlisting a, a buy side M&A advisory firm, you're, they're pretty legit offers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, kind of circling back to educating the M&A advisors. So, you know, I guess what are some, you know, maybe, I don't know, two, three, four, five tips that you would want to make sure that every M&A advisor would know on how they can work um, and best educate and advise their clients on an unsolicited offer, um, whether it's their client or your hopefully a soon to be client, if they haven't business, like what are the, the main points that you want? You, know, you kind of mentioned a lot of great things here, but if you were to put into a couple of bullet points, like, what are the main things you want to do as an M&A advisor to advise um, a potential client or a business owner on an unsolicited offer? So I think the first thing is you want to make sure that you're fully versed in the sector so that you you know can actually analyze whatever the situation is and, and speak articulately to it, speak accurately about uh, you know the situation too. I think you need to be willing to take a little bit of risk and give them some free advice in order to build credibility. You know, if I tell you, oh, there's no way that offer can be good, I can get you more. That is exactly what they expect you to say. And that is exactly what will put their guard up about working with you. Because all of a sudden, it's just all about you earning a fee. So, you know, you need to reframe the discussion and and you need to make it about them and about doing what's best for them. And I, and I firmly believe the best way to do that is to make the money only one part of it. Everybody wants to hear that, um, you know, you can get them a higher multiple, right? but you can never guarantee it, right? No. If you can guarantee it, I think the simplest thing is to put your fee at risk. If, if you know that the offer is so low and, and you can do enough diligence on the company um, to be confident in this, put your fee at risk unless you, you know, eclipse a certain amount. Um, but, you know, that then makes it all about the price of the multiple, you know, right. so then, you know, separating it to get into the weeds of the deal terms and the buyer fit and, um, you know, other really important factors that don't come out until way later will, will give you the credibility to make them more comfortable. And part of that too, part of the, you know, beyond just the free advice, do some of the legwork up front. you know, mm -hmm. review their financials. If they'll let you review the offer, review whatever other KPIs are important 
um, to understanding is this a good company that should trade at, at industry leading multiple so that when you go back to them again you're not just fishing and saying oh yeah let me take you to market you know just hunting for a fee but you're actually able to more specifically pinpoint how you can prove an offer how you're going to approach the process um you know that that is more likely than not to win them over um i wouldn't we we not just me caber hill as a rule we don't take clients on unless we get to review that information anyway we're not just yeah. taking verbal assurances on your know, revenue or EBITDA or customer concentration or any other the the key mm -hmm. metrics, right? We're we're collecting data, analyzing it, and then we're making recommendations. Mm -hmm. Yes, you should go to market now. Here's what you can expect, or no, you shouldn't. And here here are the reasons why. We're we're never afraid to tell you know somebody that they shouldn't go to market yet, or they're not the right fit for us. And and the same would apply in in this scenario. So you know it's it's do the work. Be honest, give a little to, you know, get a little, um, you know, I think if you do those three things, uh, you know, a, a business owner is much more likely to trust you in this scenario than not. Yeah, I think a great piece of advice there is don't make it all about the fee and that you just want to earn a fee. Make it about providing more value to help the business owner get a better deal, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, right. And that's, that's, you're going to be a, a try because, you know, they're going to, they're going to probably, you know, enlist, you know, the, 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 their trusted advisors might be their CPA, their attorney, you know, their wealth manager. Right. And if you're developing relationships with those kinds of people too, um, you know, that might be another way that an unsolicited offer comes through to you. Correct. I mean, because a lot of times business owners and correct me if I'm wrong, don't think about an M&A advisor until it's almost sometimes too late. Right. 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 And, you know, I've, I've always said you're never going to you're never going to make somebody ready to sell if they're not ready to sell. Right. We talk to business owners at all stages all the time. Some are gathering information five to seven years in advance. doesn't matter how hot the market is. Um, you know, you're not going to convince them to sell if they're not ready. There are going to be some who just have to scratch the itch of trying to do it on their own. Um, but if you do the right thing on the front end and it doesn't go through, like most of them don't when they're in these proprietary scenarios, then they are more likely to come back to you. I mean, I've been in situations where both the CPA and the attorney recommended to the business owner that they talk to us. Yeah. That owner still tried to do the deal on their own. Unfortunately, didn't go through, came back to us. Fortunately, we were able to, to get it done. So there's yeah. <laughs> there's no silver bullet like anything else in, in our business. Um, but, yeah. you know, you, you do the right thing and, and you're going to end up top more often than not. You know, one thing I feel like we haven't really hit on, too, when you go at it alone as a business owner is, you know, we're doing this work as full-time jobs, right? So right. how can we expect the business owner to put you know, full, you know, days work into trying to sell their business and still run the business at the same time. Typically not a good recipe for success. No, typically not. I mean, even when we're involved, right, the the stress and, and the surge periods on them, you know, can become overwhelming and, and that, you know, may last a couple of weeks and they're trying to do that and manage an entire sale process over the course of six to nine months. Um, it is very, very difficult for them to keep the business afloat, uh, you know, more often than not, something's going to happen. Um, and it's not going to be positive 
and you know it's going to actually derail the sale process longer than uh, the the whatever impact of that specific event is. Yeah, and if you're not focused on the business, then maybe sales decline. Maybe that goes south, and then it's inevitably longer. I mean, it just makes complete and you know sense that why not enlist someone who does this for a living? They're gonna hopefully inevitably get you a better deal. Um, and I think you know we us as M and A advisors, intermediaries, um, you know, find find that way to really you know show those those business owners your value. Um, and then it, like I think you guys do a really good job because you talked about not taking on a client until you've seen the financials and knowing, you know, what, what they're all about. Um, and that's just your process. But if your process is always the same and you're consistent, whether you get, a, a you know, an unsolicited offer or you've been working on a client for four months, four years, even like the process is the process you're going to do it. And you're going to find good, good clients to work with. I think that's, you know, something that's kind of an underlying, you know, um, suggestion in my point is, you know, make sure that you're bringing on good clients. Don't, as an M&A advisor, jump to always uh, take on an unsolicited offer because that could be a headache for you as well too, right? Right, right, exactly. You know, you just reminded me of something too. I mean, another thing that we'll tell business owners, um, and, and I, I see this in the market, I firmly believe it. I don't know a single private equity investor that will sell one of their portfolio companies without hiring an investment banker to sell it for yeah. them. So right. what does that tell you? you yeah, know, they're the not doing guy, it. <laughs> you know, there's two things that they will do for every single one of their portfolio companies. They will run a sell site Q of E before going to market and they will hire an investment banker to run the process. Um, you know, they have some additional fiduciary considerations that the average entrepreneur who just owns hundred percent of their business you know, doesn't. But at the end of the day, they know without a doubt that they're going to have the best set of numbers to present and run the most thorough process if they follow those two steps. And those are things we recommend to every single entrepreneur. And those are probably the two aspects of the sale process that the average entrepreneur is the most averse to. Yeah. Yeah. And then what did you say? I mean, would you hate to, you know, be sitting after you sell your business to this unsolicited offer and, you know, you see like other businesses in your industry, because you might keep tabs on it, right? That they sold for, if you could get the information um, more than what you're, like, you want to be sitting in retirement thinking, I could have got two, three, four million dollars more for my company. You know, I don't, I feel like enlisting in an M&A advisor is, you know, important just for your own like mental sanity to know that you got the best deal possible. It, it's good for your mental sanity. If you have minority partners, it shows that yeah. there's an arm's length relationship between you as the majority owner and the sale and, and makes it more clear that this is run objective and with, you know, fiduciary responsibility toward all the, the shareholders in mind. I mean, there are absolutely cases where we've talked to people um, and they haven't hired us. And we found out six, 12 months later that they've sold and we've seen who they sold to. And we know just by knowing who they sold to and nothing more that they didn't get the best deal they possibly could. Yeah. As tempting as it is, I never pick up the phone and tell them that, you know, in hindsight, <laughs> right, even right. when some of them come back to us to gloat that they mm -hmm. did the deal on their own. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, ignorance is bliss in those situations. That's all I can say. Yeah, right, right. And you know what your worth is. And if, you, you know, those are probably not the kind of clients you want to work with anyway, that uh, they don't right. understand the value and 
the opportunity they have in front of them um, because, you know, you get something, you know, pie out of the skies, you know, what do they say? If something's too good to be true, it typically is. Um, right. And that's where I think us as M&A advisors, intermediaries, um, you know, can, can stay, you know, stand strong on the value that we provide and, uh, you know, understand that. And, you know, when we're promoting ourselves, like we know we're doing what's right for them. And that's inevitably what we want to do. And if you're focusing on getting the fee, that's that you're not going to be as successful, but if you're focusing on, you know, helping your client out, you know, whether you sound like a really great person or, you know, so, you know, really, you know, experienced advisor, um, it's all going to come back to you in the end and you're going to do right by your client. My opinion. 100%. Yeah. Anything that, uh, we didn't hit on here, um, Craig, that you, you wanted to mention for, uh, for the topic at hand. I don't think this is going away anytime soon. I think this is a battle that we will fight forever. Uh, you know, at least as long as we're in an active market, I don't think recent macro trends are changing things. Um, you know, the, the only other thought I have is, is this, you know, one as, as entrepreneurs are becoming wiser to, M&A, or at least they think they are. Yeah, they're understanding the concept of EBITDA more. They're understanding the concept of multiples more so than ever before. And I really think that speaks to the influx to PE, of PE money and kind of the overall increase in, in M&A activity. One thing that entrepreneurs become aware of is, you know, the, the owner-operator risk associated with smaller companies. And if I am the owner and I'm also a very key contributor to you know the company itself or certain aspects of the company can't run without me, it, it either reduces the value or requires me to stay on for a very long time post-sale, um, you know, perhaps more than whatever you know, industry standard might be. Mm-hmm. So I wanna reduce the company's reliance on me. And I think every business owner, not every, but several uh, oversell the the way that they have potentially stepped back or reduced the the company's reliance on them. The companies are always more reliant on them than than they're willing to admit. But an owner who has truly been able to, you know, take a step back and you know make the business less reliant on them has done so by delegating and trusting others. Yeah. And if you want to present the picture that that is who you are and that is how you run your company. And then you go and try to sell your company on your own. It really flies in the face of the story you're trying to tell because it sends a loud and clear signal that you're really not that sophisticated. You're really not that willing to give up control. And the buy side can see right through that. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the one thing we didn't, we didn't touch yeah. on here that, that that's relevant to this topic. It's, you know, it's, it's all of these things, but you know, that, that's a nice final thought. Is the, you know, to add on to that, if the buy side sees that, is there an opportunity for them to, you know, kind of smell blood in the water there? Take advantage of an opportunity like that? Not Potentially. Saying they would, not saying they would, but there's risk there, right? There's risk there. Um, I think it, it makes it harder to stretch on the multiple. I think it makes it harder to pay more cash or close, shorten an employment agreement, reduce an equity role, eliminate an earnout. You know, all, all these things that we want to, you know, in, improve upon. Um, you know, a certain percentage of the companies we sell, the owners want to roll a lot of equity. Yeah. Most 
understand they have to roll some and that they're not getting nine or 10 times if they don't roll some, mm-hmm. um, but they still want as much cash as they can get. Right. And it's right. easier to pay cash to somebody if you realize, if you fully believe that the business is not relying on their contributions. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. Very good point. And something, you know, as whether it's, you know, working with an exit planner or, you know, you said, you mentioned you guys work with clients three, six, whatever months out, that, that's something you probably go to right away is like, can you leave the company for a month and it still exists when you get back? Uh, right. and, and that's definitely important. So, uh, no, I, Craig, I appreciate the time. This was amazing. Uh, information, a great discussion. I learned a lot. I know our audience will learn a lot. Um, appreciate you taking the time to join us today and talk about the unsolicited offer. I think there's a lot of nuances to us as M&A advisors, how we can educate the business owner on this topic. Um, and so definitely check out this episode, go back to this episode. I think you'll, you listen to it multiple times, you'll learn a little, you know, something you might've missed on the first time. So definitely check it out. Um, where can our listeners find more about you, Craig, and Caber Hill and the great work you guys are doing. Best place is probably our website, caberhill.com. You can also find us on on LinkedIn. That's the one social media platform that uh, we put a lot of effort into. Um, so either of those two places, you can email me, Craig, C-R-A-I-G, at, at caberhill.com if you want to reach out directly. Awesome. And uh, this is a lot of fun, Nick. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Um, and check out um, all of our episodes at cornerstoneia.com slash podcast. All of our previous episodes, all our future episodes will be housed there. Um, Do Craig and I a favor, uh, like, share, and comment on this episode. Forward on to anybody that you would think might benefit from it, whether it's M&A Advisor or if you have a friend who's a business owner, uh, definitely send this over their way. And we're more than willing and able and happy to help out any business owner uh, on an unsolicited offer and when they're looking to exit their company. So thank you very much, uh, Craig, today, and have a great day. Until next time, uh, this is the M&A Mastermind Podcast. Take care, everyone.